Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 446, air date April 12th, 2019. And we're live. What's going on, everybody? I'm here with another episode of Make America Debate Again. I'm here with Dr. Shiva, who's a lot of things. He's a recent politician in the last few years who's ran against Elizabeth Warren. He also says he was the inventor of the email, but Wikipedia says he's not. So I wanted to talk about that because it doesn't seem like they want to give him credit. And also he has a new book out about climate change, which is a topic I'm very interested in. Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here, Anomaly. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Let's start it off with email. I'll get right into it because I always read, you know, you invented email and you say it a lot. And then Wikipedia says controversial claim. And you've explained it a few times, but I want to go more in depth. What exactly did you do during the founding days of the email to the point where you know you invented it? Yeah, so the issue here is anomaly. There is no controversy about who invented email. I invented the first email system in the world, period. The real controversy is why is there even a controversy? So let me give you the facts. <laughs> um, and, it, and, and I think it leads to this broader question of where does innovation come from? Uh, who determines who's smart, who's not smart? Uh, what is innovation, et cetera? But there's absolutely no controversy on who invented email. And it's unfortunate because the entire controversy was created by essentially white liberals who are the same people who claim that they want to help the poor minority or the poor quote unquote darkie. And I, I, I say that because when you look at this history and you just go to the facts, because what's happened is we live in a world right now that you have an engine of academia which is different than, by the way, scientists who do not allow any type of discourse to take place so they contain freedom. And therefore, you can't really get a, a discourse on it. So the truth always gets maligned by other interests. And the people who suffer are actually everyday working people. So when you go to the invention of email, you know, as you know, I have four degrees from MIT, including my PhD. I went uh, between 1981 to 2007, I went in and out of MIT, created seven companies. Um, all of one of them, which we grew to around 250 million. The current company I'm creating right now is called Cytosol, which is worth a couple of billion dollars. And these companies are all innovations that I create, you know, take out to the public. So it's not something that, you know, uh, we take uh, ideas from someone else. It's all homegrown. And the invention of email is no different. So let me tell you what email is, first of all. Um, anyone over the age of 40 will know that many organizations had a thing, and still some do, called the inner office mail system. Okay, and that system, and I use the word system, was a, a multi-integrated system of how communications took place in offices. So in the 70s, for example, there were two ways people communicated anomaly. One was through the phone, landline phones. We didn't have probably very, very few people had a satellite phone, but it was physically, you know, copper-connected landline phones. So if you went into an office, they had these landline phones. The other thing that they had in offices was what's called the inter-office mail system. And in those days, um, to give you the background, you know, I came from India in 1970. I was a seven-year-old kid. Um, as I've talked about before, I grew up in an India, which was a caste system, right? I grew up in Bombay as a young kid, but I also grew up in a deep village. We were considered untouchables in India, Anomaly. And it may be hard for people to understand that, but you had a caste system and we were considered the bottom of the caste called Shudras. So people from my background weren't even supposed to get educated, weren't even supposed to learn science or engineering, any of that. 
the fact that my parents in India learned that at a time when they weren't even supposed to, ed- to get educated is probably one in a trillion. So the fact they came together and I came out of that is probably another one in a trillion to the trillion. All right. Um, so when we came here in 1970, I was extremely aware of the incredible fortune I had coming from India. So as a seven-year-old kid, I was very ambitious, both in sports and academia or academics. By the time I was 14, I had actually finished calculus in the ninth grade, and I was being shipped to the high school with people four years older to learn calculus, finish that. And in the summer of 77, 78, uh, an incredible opportunity opened up. I had the chance to go while I was living in New Jersey all the way to New York in a special program where 40 kids got selected uh, to go study at NYU, the Corrent Institute of Mathematical Sciences, one of the most elite institutions. And these 40 kids essentially were in a Navy SEAL military-like program where in a very short period we learned seven computer languages, learned how to program. And uh, it was an extraordinary program. When I finished that, I had some high school courses left. But I was very fortunate. I actually got a full-time job in Newark, New Jersey, which nothing is supposed to come out of. Most people, are, even in those days, were afraid to go into Newark, and people still are. But in the center of Newark was a small medical college called the College of Medicine and Dentistry, which today is called Rutgers Medical School. And I, so what happened was my high school teachers were very supportive of me. These were teachers uh, anomaly who worked three or four jobs, okay? This was at a time when you had public school education, which really worked. My loving parents, and I found a mentor at Rutgers Medical School whose name was Dr. Les Michelson. Les is still there, he's the head of high performance computing. And Les was a experimental physicist out of Brookhaven National Labs. And at that university, Les had set up a network. Now you don't need the ARPANET. The total lies are that the ARPANET, the military industrial complex contributed so much when a lot of other people are doing much more extraordinary things. But Les had created a computer network between Newark, which was in Newark, the other campus of Rutgers, which was in Piscataway and another campus, which was in New Brunswick. And less, and when I first started there, I was actually doing medical research. I was using my computing skills to program um, uh, computers on how to mix computers with biology. And I was actually solving an, a very interesting problem looking at why babies were dying in their sleep. We had sleep data. And I, in fact, went on and published a paper long before I came to MIT on that. But uh, Dr. Michelson also gave me another challenge. So as I mentioned, in these offices, like every other office of the time, they had the phone system. And they, and they had the inner office mail system. Every secretary had a physical desktop, you know, physical, you know, a, a desk. On that desk was this thing called a typewriter. Um, on that desk was the inbox, the outbox, the drafts. There was actually a trash can underneath her. Behind her were folders, literally metal, metal folders. On her desktop was also a thing called paper clips, uh, whiteout. She would write this thing called a memo. And the memo had a very particular structure. As many memos of the day on the top, it said memorandum, to, from, subject. Mm-hmm. And um, they would sometimes do what's called a carbon copy. It was a social media of the time. And you literally, if I sent you an email or uh, a mail, a memo, I could CC other people. And I'll explain why they had that, which literally meant I would take two pieces of paper, stick a carbon paper. And for every CC, I had to do retype. Okay. So it was a lot of work. And you had registered mail. It was a very complex system. And I think if you go to my the website on inventor of email, you'll see these mail. So once you wrote a memo, so for example, if I was going to hire you anomaly for a job, right? I would 
write to my boss, I'd say, you know, I'd like to hire this guy, here's his resume, that would be an attachment, and I may CC 10 other managers. That would get circulated, everyone would give their comments, and then we would decide to hire you, okay, or not. So well, where, very, I just wanna ask real quick, cause I, I, get, I, I get what you're saying. Where does the controversy come in? You said it was like white liberals. No, yeah, so, 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 but I wanna give you this context because in those early computers, you could send simple text messages. That's not what I'm talking about. So I was asked to convert this entire system, about a hundred different features anomaly for secretaries. You see the guys in the white, I'm giving you a scenario because in those days, who used computers? It was old white guys in lab coats, nerds with glasses and pocket protectors. And the secretary was always a woman. And these nerds never thought a secretary could ever even touch a computer. So my customers, as a 14-year-old kid, my challenge was, could I convert that entire system to the electronic format? So I wrote 50,000 lines of code, captured every feature in that system, which is in every email system today. And I called that system email. So first of all, I wrote the code, captured every feature, fact one, which is now in the Smithsonian. Fact two, I called it email, a term never used before in the English language. Why did I call it email? was because the operating system only allowed five characters. It was not an obvious term. The next thing was in 1981, I went to MIT. And when I came to MIT on the front page of MIT, I was a very humble, good Indian student guy, right? They listed, no, seriously, the Indians are brought to be humble, you know, bow down, right? Sit in the lotus position, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and so when I came to MIT, the president of MIT or the, or the MIT official newspaper listed three students out of 1,041 students on the front page who had done something interesting. And one of them was me having created this first email system. That year, I went to the president of MIT's house for dinner because I was elected student body president. And he said, Shiva, it's too bad. He was a science advisor to Reagan. And he gave me some very powerful advice. He said, you know, the Supreme Court, this is in 1981, doesn't recognize software patents because the politicians didn't know what software was. However, in 1980, two years after I'd invented email, the laws were changed to use copyright law mm. to protect software, okay? So he said, you should apply for a copyright. Again, my parents weren't lawyers like Bill Gates' lawyer, by the way, who didn't invent DOS, okay? Who no one questions him or, or Mark Zuckerberg. So I had to send all my code to the copyright office back and forth on August 30th, 1982, a young teenage American kid gets the first copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email, because that was the only way to protect software invention. So in context, that's 1982. I wrote all the code, called it email, have the first copyright. There's no controversy. So how, okay. where, where, do they, where do they build their case to, to make it so controversial? Right, right. In fact, I, so now fast forward, right, to 19, uh, 2012. In and out of MIT, I was on the front page for inventing many other things, won a bunch of awards at MIT. But in 2011, something interesting happened. My dear mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. And in a suitcase, she had saved everything, all the code, all the artifacts. The, edit, the senior editor of Time Magazine, by the way, the only journalist today to actually review the materials, went through it and he wrote a very powerful piece called The Man Who Invented Email. You can go look at it, November 11th, 2011. Three months later, the Smithsonian contacted me and they wanted all my materials. They said, we've never seen anything like this. It was like a new skull was found in Africa, anomaly. You had and the date February, beaten, right? You had the other dates beaten, like pre -cursing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and February 16, 2012. Well, there is no other date. These guys didn't invent email. They invented simple <laughs>
messaging. In February 16, 2012, it goes into the Smithsonian. There's a big ceremony, so a month after my mom died. And, and a Washington Post reporter, a young reporter, writes an article called Shiva Ayodhure, honored as the inventor of email. Mm -hmm. Now, you would think that should be an amazing event to celebrate the American dream. Came here with nothing, you know, and I went through the entire innovation process, four degrees at MIT, and invented many other things. The instant it went into the Smithsonian, the instant that article was written, you see this hatred come up from everywhere. And it was coming from white liberal institutions and fake historians. You see, during the 32 years, I wasn't out there promoting myself because I made money other ways, didn't need this fame or fortune for invention of email. The military industrial complex, Raytheon, one of the big defense companies, had bought a company called BBNN. And they had re if you went to their site then, they rebranded their website with the at symbol. And many of the defense companies were getting into cybersecurity. Missile sales were going down. So nearly every defense company was getting into cybersecurity. Part of cybersecurity is who can watch and observe email, right? So Raytheon had recrafted themselves as the inventors of email with the at logo. So think about it. Imagine Nike with the swoosh, right? Raytheon's symbol was the at logo. So the day my stuff went in, it unleashed this vitriol because Raytheon, who, by the way, a month later had funded an exhibition at the Smithsonian, it was like a new skull was found and they had to destroy this narrative. And the narrative is because the facts are so black and white. And so you see Gizmodo, which is one of the Gawker media things, attack me. This guy is a Curry St. Indian. He's an asshole. He's a dick. All sorts of horrible stuff. One blog, as I mentioned, said this Curry St. Indian should be beaten and hanged. That's great. They yeah. literally said that? Yep. Quote, unquote. All right. Who so are the writers? Like, who was the author of that? That's crazy. Uh, we, we can look it up. It, it was a, a blog which referenced Gizmodo. Um, and not one Indian stood up, okay? Because there's a deeper narrative here, right? The issue was the deeper narratives, the facts are freaking obvious, man. Maybe if I was a white guy or maybe even Jewish, okay? Nothing, I, know, I went to a Jewish high school, a lot of smart people. If I had blue eyes and blonde hair, I'd probably be on every stamp in the world. But the notion of innovation, not only occurring by an Indian, the race issue, let's put aside over here, but it occurring in Newark, New Jersey, by a 14-year-old kid, it blows the mind off the larger narrative, where does innovation come from? You see, Americans have all been brainwashed to believe that we fund war, and thank you so much for getting Velcro and Tang, right? By the way, which didn't come out of the, uh, out of the, uh, which didn't come out of the military either. We have been taught to take our, in innovation, take our hand and you know, put your hand like this to touch your nose, and so doing this, which means you fund war, and we should be happy we get innovation. When the fact is, history shows that all great innovations actually come from everyday people. Innovation is in our DNA solving a problem. The problem I was trying to do is take secretaries from the keyboard to the, you know, um, I'm sorry, from the typewriter to the uh, keyboard. Okay. At a time when people thought that was impossible, by the way, which is documented in a RAND report, the nerds at, in the military were doing simple did it, did it text messaging. I was trying to convert this entire system, which they thought was impossible. So there is absolutely no controversy. The controversy is why is there a controversy? A friend of mine who started Business Insider, you know, the editor said, uh, Kevin Ryan, he goes, the real story is there is, why is there a controversy? Gotcha. Think about it. I all the features, call it email, I have the first copyright. Where is the controversy? The controversy is it wasn't done at MIT. It wasn't done at Silicon Valley. 
Okay, look, I was on the front page of Technology Review, the most eminent magazine for inventing Echo Mail. All right, I won a Fulbright Award, front page of MIT. That was done within the umbrella of MIT, which is part of the military industrial complex. But if you say innovation was done in Newark by a kid solving a civilian problem, that throws a wrench into the bigger narrative that we got to fund war, we got to go kill some people somewhere else, and then we get innovation. So let me by just. I just want to go over it real quick before we get any further. So you're saying you had the code, you did it first, and then they just like rebranded it. Say like Oreo was, there was a cookie like Oreo before, oh, but they made it bigger. So you had the code, you had it. They put the at symbol, rebranded it, wanted credit Raytheon. for it. And you're saying it's Raytheon? Yeah. It's Raytheon? Who, who was behind that? Yes. So what happened was, uh, you can go to inventor of email. I can read all the details. What happened was um, text messaging, um, is the ability to add text to the bottom of a file. The guy who, uh, who they rebranded, it's almost like they did a casting call. He's got glasses, pocket protector, beard, okay? Doesn't, not a good looking Indian guy who plays sports. You see, that's the other part of the segregation here. You have to look and smell a certain way, then you're an inventor. You can't articulate, you, sh you shouldn't look good, you can't, uh, you see what I'm saying? They've created a narrative, what an innovator, just like an artist must be crazy. Yeah, you see? I, I want to, two questions real quick. I, one, nowadays it seems like they're into the race stuff, but you're also not liberal. So do you think if you were liberal nowadays that they'd use your story as like a well, puff no, piece? No, look, look, in the middle of this controversy, you see the real racists are white liberals. Like working class people, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey with everyday working people, man, they get this, okay? There is racism, but the racism is not what you think it is because, I mean, I have a different definition of racism, and what happens is the right doesn't really know what racism is and the left takes advantage of that when they're the real racists. The real racism is drawing boxes around what someone is supposed to do, okay? That's, it's, a, it's a very deeper form of racism. If you were and, liberal though, do you think they'd use you now? Like say you were like an Elizabeth Warren and you were big government, well, all those. Well, do you no, because my thing is two things. Let me give you a, a juxtaposition to this. You know yeah. who invented TV? Uh, well, they say it was, I, I forget his name. Uh, remind Philo me. Farnsworth. Yeah, Philo Farnsworth, exactly. Okay, a 14-year-old kid, similar circumstances in Franklin, Idaho. He had a, a, a very supportive family. He had a mentor, and he was in a farm in Franklin, Idaho, in a small town of 600 people. He went through 60 years. Finally, there's a statue of him in Washington. Now, Philo didn't have a race issue, but he, he did it outside of the military-industrial complex. You see? The real issue is... Even if I was a liberal, it still throws a wrench in. Had I done it at MIT, no, no doubt about it, okay? Do, the do, issue is where do, where do great innovations come from? You see, when I went to MIT, it's like you get a branding. Oh, now you're smart, okay? But I didn't need to freaking go to MIT, man. In fact, I didn't even know about MIT until two weeks before I went to MIT, okay? Because I went to a high school, which was very, very, um, uh, pecuniary on sharing advice to people. I was, you know, my sister and I, one of two Indian kids, this is in the seventies with 4,000 kids, right? After I got into MIT, then my high school jumped on the bandwagon and wanted to take credit for it. My point is I didn't have a lot of help. There was no college scam. My parents weren't paying off people. So the real issue here is innovation. It's, it's a two part issue. In one case, I didn't fit the model of what an innovator is supposed to be. And the second model is that it occurred before MIT, all right? So you have to really get this. 
they have branded all great innovation must come from Silicon Valley, MIT, or a Harvard dropout. Okay, that's cool, but surely cannot come from a 14-year-old kid in Newark. That do doesn't fit. Do you think it's a power thing too? Because I'm I'm even thinking. Um you know, they do everything or they buy it. Like when Snapchat came out, they were like, but we're going to buy it or we're going to take it over or we're going to copy it's it and control. push you out of the way. Yeah. We're like, even yeah. if I, I know Philo Farnsworth said that um, he didn't like his own kids watching television because this whole idea got co-opted and used for evil, uh, you know, that he thought where it's like, you're not connected. You're not uh, coming from their schools. You're not under their control. You're not a puppet even now as a politician. So because of all those things, and even you know, you say race played a factor. It's like they they can't control you, they can't use you, and they can't exactly. steal it. I think you nailed it. Look, there's a, so as you peel away this layer, okay, military industrial complex, the race issue, Newark. There's even a deeper issue why they really get pissed off with me. You know that every time we actually try to post stuff on Wikipedia, Raytheon and BBN have trolls. Wikipedia, by the way, is not about truth; it's citations, and you can hire people to control narratives on Wikipedia. It's really disgusting. Mm -hmm. uh, every time you can go look at the history of Wikipedia, how, what my page was before 2012, they removed me off the inventors list. I mean, it was pretty amazing the level of malice that took place. Um, but I think one of the most central things is I wasn't willing to be a good Indian. This is a deeper thing. When I talk about segregation, when you think about an Indian, what do you think about? Gandhi shaking his head, you know, someone sitting in the lotus position meditating. Well, you haven't seen an Indian like me. Okay, people, I fight back. Most Indians tilt their head. Okay, we'd be a good Indian. So that bothers me. Hey, why is this Indian guy fighting back? He's not supposed to behave like that. It's not a race issue. It's about putting people in boxes. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. He is supposed to look like this. An Indian guy is supposed to be in the lotus position. He's supposed to be meek and humble and speak slowly. He's not supposed to fight back. All right? So they have created narratives. And if you don't fit that box, it could be color, skin, having a beard, not having a beard, looking a certain way, then you are attacked because you violate their system of control and power. That's what this is fundamentally about. And behind who is really running this or who helps them do this is academia. You see, academia, there was a time when there was real science, and we can get to the climate science stuff, but today you have paid prostitutes who are called academics. An academic is really not a scientist, a big difference. Academics get grants and they'll do anything for grant money. They prostitute quote unquote truth and they make money off of it because today grants are controlled by political motives and you have scientific consensus, which is bullshit. You know, science stands independent of consensus. Science is science is science. And it's independent of how good you look, how you talk, etc. And what's happened is politics control science. So historians can get paid off by Raytheon, can get paid off by Smithsonian, get pats on the back, get tenure, you know, to support narratives. But the invention of email, man, there's no freaking controversy. I okay. called it email, copyright, period. The real question is, why is there even any controversy? Why do people go and say his controversial claim to be the inventor of email? It's, a, it's an attack because I do not let up. And I never wanted this, man. I never wanted the fame, the fortune. But when you attacked me, then I said, you know what? I'm going to take total claim because I did invent email. That's why I boldly say it, inventor of email. And that even pisses them off even more. And no, I, the invention of email is not about me. It's about a 14-year-old American kid who invented email not in the triangle of the military-industrial-academic complex, 
but in the collaboration of a loving family, a mentor, and the old dedicated, that's where innovation comes from, man. It doesn't come from MIT always. It doesn't come from Silicon Valley. And the bottom line, the other piece is to increase the cost of innovation, you see? Because if I could produce, I mean, I was paid a buck 25 an hour. First two years, I got lunch for free. So you don't need a lot of money to innovate, man. What you need is the right ecosystem. And that ecosystem could be bought for a hundredth of the cost. But if you crank up the value of that ecosystem, then a few people make a shitload of money. That's what this is. It's about money and power and control. And then a new caste system. Oh, you go to MIT, you get to invent. You go to Silicon Valley or you're, in a, or you're a Harvard's dropout, oh, you can be branded as an inventor. People should go find out, did Bill Gates actually ever invent anything? He stole DOS from somebody else. Zuckerberg stole it from someone else. Had I made a gazillion dollars, had patent law been around, no one would question me. People say, oh yeah, you're the inventor of email, you got a gazillion dollars. No, I understand. And uh, I said Wikipedia said it was controversial. I wanted to get it all out there because I've heard you talk about it a bunch of times, but I wanted to get right down to the specifics. First, I want to say for myself, even with Trump, I do the same thing you do and people think I'm bragging. I was like, I'm writing my own history because if I don't get to document my own history, they're going to lie about it in the press on Wikipedia and history. So we almost are forced to do this just to get our story out there or else they're going to lie about it. I just wanted to get right down to it so people can hear and be 100% sure. So you had... You had the coding first, you had the idea first, the, the whole idea. They tried to tie the text message stuff they were doing to it and they put the they at symbol. It. Yeah, rebranded right. re, re it and just uh, attacked, even though you had Smithsonian and the first press on it. So they well, came after it afterwards. Smithsonian, remember the Smithsonian is run by a bunch of academics. It went viral. And then the Smithsonian, after they were attacked, they said, oh, uh, electronic, very clever, electronic messaging predates email. I never said I created electronic messaging, which is changing messages between electric or electrical devices. That credit goes to Samuel Morse, okay? It doesn't even go to Raytheon. But I invented email, the system as we know it today, period. There is no controversy. And if anyone wants to debate me on this, bring it on. But they don't want to debate ever on, look, We'll move to climate science when there's such facts that are so clear, they always create controversies because that is their only way to diminish the truth. And, and you know, that's, that's the reality of what's going, going on. Look, not only did I invent email, then I went on to create another company in 1993 to analyze email. You know, yeah. I made 250, grew that to 250 million bucks. And then it's, it's my innovation in email just didn't stop with one thing. Then I helped the Postal Service in 2011. I was funded by the Postal Service to give them ideas on how email could be used as a public service. So you're looking at a guy who's been working on email since, you know, a 14-year-old kid. It's not a one-hit wonder, and I've made money many other ways. So it's not I, I needed this to justify my value, but the truth is email was invented by a 14-year-old American kid in Newark, New Jersey, period. I mean, that period is such a big period, there's no gray area in it. Well, I wanted you to get that story out there. And it's no doubt with academia, with the news, mass media, they literally live in upside down world where they're manipulating history. They're lying about almost yeah. everything. Up is down, down is up, left is right. Even with me, I got called last week, uh, last month, a white nationalist by a right wing publication. Not true. Part Puerto Rican. Obviously, I'm white, but I'm not an, even a nationalist. Um, they called me self-proclaimed in Fox News. So I do the same thing you do to get it out there because it's it's sad that we have to fight for our history and our legacy or else they're going to lie about it. 
The next one is something you talk about that I do too. You call yourself an environmentalist as I do, but unlike 99% of environmentalists, we think there's something up with climate change and that's your new book. Tell me about it and also tell me about you know the science and academia behind how they've been able to convince millions of people of something that there's not really that much there to. Yeah, so I think let's sort of understand, excuse me, you brought up a, some important things here, right? As we transition from looking at the facts about the invention of email, and there's a lot of lessons there, we move to the climate. By the way, the book is called The Climate of Science. It's worse, much worse than you thought. And that first subtitle in the book, there's a book some idiot wrote who's not a scientist, a guy who writes for The New Yorker. It's called The Uninhabitable World. It just came out. And his first sentence, it's worse, much worse than you think. It's alarmism. So you know, that's sort of a joke on that. And we have, if you look at the cover of the book, we have, uh, by the way, people can pre-order, we have the, <laughs> the earth in the center and the sun rotating around it, okay? So, and it's called the climate of science, meaning what is actually going on with science? And look, just to give you the background, so this is what bothers a lot of these people, because if anyone's an environmentalist, it's me. And here's my credentials on that. First of all, I grew up, in India on a farm. My grandparents were poor village farmers. Long before there was Monsanto and pesticides, we live in, you know, people protected the land. I mean, I grew up on that. The second thing is, more recently, if you go to Whole Foods, you'll see a clean certified label, which integrates non-GMO, clean food, where the food's coming from. I'm the one who created that label for the industry. You'll see thousands of products with it out in Whole Foods. And I work with industry manufacturers to do that. So I support, you know, clean food. The third thing is I was, um, you know, I was a guy who used this new technology that came out of my PhD work, which allows us to actually mathematically understand chemical pathways on the computer uh, models. I mean, I, I'm a, I've been doing modeling for 20, 30 years, so I understand mathematical models. We're actually able to model anomaly diseases, you know, biological functions. And using that, we wrote a series of six scientific papers, five, I'm sorry, where we conclusively showed that a genetically engineered food is not the same as an organic version of that. That in fact, with soy, the soy will have around 250% less glutathione, which is one of the most important antioxidants. So I'm, I'm the guy who went head on head against Monsanto. I was attacked by the mainstream academics and we exposed them also. Mm. And then more recently, I was in a movie uh, produced by Pierce Brosnan, directed by his wife called Poisoning Paradise. I'm the main scientist. It's, I think it's won about 20 film awards. It's about the devastation that's taken place to the eastern part of the highland of Kauai in Hawaii by the agrobiotech companies, including Monsanto. So my point is you're looking at it, if anyone's an environmentalist, it's me. And I have the credentials, but more importantly, environmentalism, in my view, is lowering pollution, okay? Clean air, clean food, clean water. So that's my definition. We want to lower pollution. So let's move on to climate change. Look, first of all, climate is always changing, so there's no denial on that. Is CO2 a greenhouse gas? Definitely. Do humans put out CO2? Yes. Do greenhouse gases raise temperature? Yes. So all of those we agree on. The issue is how much. It's not yes or no. It's how much, right? And that's where the science really needs to occur. So what's happened is the, the, the alarmism, if you actually look at it, it's, it's been created by people who are taking advantage of the fact the average graduate 
who's coming out of university actually knows no science. And I'll come back to this. So a lot of people graduate school think they know science, but they actually don't. They don't know the second law of thermodynamics. They don't know that it's being forced and acceleration. I think less than one in 10 people actually knows that, but they have a degree. Those people are really the soldiers for the climate alarmism. The average working person who has to work for a living, like a plumber, electrician, engineer, knows something doesn't smell right intuitively. So this is what has happened. Um, I don't know how deep you want me to get into this, but at a high level, um, uh, a set of people with monetary interests started funding people to create climate models, mathematical models, which predict how much CO2 will increase what they call the earth retaining temperature, okay? And so they created their own battleground. They said the earth, we have to look at temperature as a global mean temperature, the average temperature of the earth, and increases in CO2 increase that global mean temperature. And they call that a temperature anomaly. And they created all these very uh, interesting mathematical models, okay? Those mathematical models predict that the temperature will go up by 1.13 degrees all the way up to 3.4, a big range, all right? When most scientists already know, agree that the last ice age took place, end of the last little ice age took place about a couple hundred years ago, and the earth is gonna thaw anyway, and we're gonna raise one degree anyway. So even according to the current temperatures, we've gone up by 0.8 degrees. Their models, predict much higher. And then if you argue with them, hey, your models aren't even predicting reality, they say, well, you know, it could be other stuff. And do you want to discount that? They create uncertainty. So this is not science. So let's go to science. This is how science works. Science works, you know, uh, anomaly. You may see some phenomenon, an apple fall from the tree. And you may say, oh, that's an observation. And then you come up with a hypothesis to keep it simply a guess. Oh, I think the apple falls from the tree because of X, Y, Z, okay? Some guess you make. And that guess may be a model, a mathematical model. Now, for you, your science to hold up, your guess, you have to drop a bunch of apples or drop anvils, whatever, right? Different things. And you have to be able to predict that behavior. If your model, if your guess doesn't predict what's going on, then your science is wrong, okay, period. It doesn't matter, as Richard Feynman said, how good you look, how, how nice you speak, where you come from, it's irrelevant. Your science is purely wrong. Well, here, they have a mathematical model, which is not matching the observation. Mm. So then in order to fudge that, they say, well, we didn't include aerosols, we didn't, we didn't include that, but, and then they come back to you and they say, but, anomaly, don't you, aren't you concerned that even if it's close, the whole world could blow up. So then they push forward, it's very, very, very powerful, insidious, the precautionary principle. So what the precautionary principle says, well, if we're close and it could sort of occur, and it may occur positively, perhaps, don't you think we should protect against that? And the precautionary principle, like in all areas, wherever you create a precautionary principle, guess what they impose on you? Insurance, right? A tax. Well, you know, you bought a car, you could get into an accident, let's buy some insurance. Well, you bought a home, you know, it, something could occur, home insurance, right? So this whole area is not driven by science. $2 billion got released for climate impact studies. 
You could say, well, you know, I think climate is involved in how my microphone is not working. Boom, you can get funded, okay? Well, you know, I think um, uh, uh, bed bugs are related to climate change. Boom, you get funded, anything. So what's happened is, uh, at the fun fundamentals of this is a whole set of academics, not scientists, that entourage keeps their mouth shut when they know the scientific method is even being followed because they have the opportunity to get billions in funding. That's what's fundamentally taking place. So if you go back to the fundamentals, um, when you look at my background, you know, there's a reason I'm a scientist, but there's a reason I've also been an activist all my life. You know, if you, people may call me a, a hard lefty. When I was at MIT, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag because MIT had investments in South Africa. I made sure more poor blacks, more poor, poor whites came to MIT, more women. You know, I was the one who raised a banner, U.S. out of Iraq during my PhD. So I'm, I've been an activist on the ground. But we need activism, true activism, to defend freedom, freedom of speech. I was a guy, 40 of us faced 40,000 people at the Boston Free Speech Rally which they try to say was a white supremacist event. Freedom of speech, truthful speech, by the way, not garbage like Gizmodo or other magazines put out. Truthful free speech is a foundation for the scientific method, right? So you need freedom. You need to be an activist to fight for freedom because freedom ensures that we have the, the environment for doing science. And from science, we get truth. And from truth, we can identify real problems and we can innovate real solutions. And from that, we, we get our health, health of our body, health of our planet, health of our organizations, and healthy people can go fight for freedom again. So you see the cycle, the positive cycle is freedom gives rise to great science, which gives rise to truth. Truth gives rise to innovation, which gives rise to health. You have healthy people, you can support more freedom. What they wanna create is a, is a much more vicious cycle, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And their goal is to make people dumb, dependent, and disarmed, right? They want to make D people. And that cycle is supported by fake academia. So I say the fake news behind fake news is fake science. Mm -hmm. So we've created another very vicious cycle. It's, and, and we've created a church now. So you're, you have a church of climatology, the church of cannabis, the church of genetically engineered foods, the church of gun violence. You see, it's not reality. It's not the truth. So you stop discourse. Um, Schumer has a bill in Congress called Bill 792, supported by the guy I'm going to run against, uh, uh, Markey, who also supported the Green New Deal, which basically says that no government agency can fund any uh, uh, panels, any conferences to discuss climate change because there's a scientific consensus. Science is not based on freaking consensus. Right. That's, that's insane. I want to say I've been an, I've been an environmentalist and uh, they got me for a little while with the climate change stuff. But with the si the science doesn't add up. I'm going to read a few things and let you go on. First of all, the sun's a variable that we can't control no matter how much we want to. We don't know exactly how it works. Uh, active volcano discovered beneath Antarctic ice sheet could be contributing to melting glacier. They found a volcano, but they don't want to talk about it. Where, like you said, if you're doing a scientific experiment and then there's a heat source under it, that you got to consider that. Here's another one, Greenland ice glacier growing. Uh, they didn't think it was going to grow. And this is directly off NASA's website. They said, snowfall is very difficult to measure over Antarctica. For starters, there are very few weather stations in the frozen continent, and most of them are installed along the coastline. Secondly, satellites have a hard time measuring snow from space. They basically confuse the snow that's falling down with snow that's already on the ground. 
Climate models struggle to replicate the total amount of snow that falls over Antarctica each year. So this is NASA themselves, the, the great scientists that they are, admitting that Antarctica's contribution to sea level rise was mitigated by snowfall and they literally can't even measure it. So people think this stuff is so settled. It's their own top scientists that say it's settled are admitting that one, they're finding um, full on volcanoes under it that are melting a little bit, but then they're like, no, it's not happening. Two, things that they thought were melting are actually growing. And then three, even with all the information that they say they have, it's still a very small part of the continent. So if you really get into it, it's such a big lie. It's it's unbelievable. How do besides well, your book, how do we get people to wake up to this stuff like kids and environmentalists and Green New Dealers? Because I'm the same way. I'm, I'm an environmentalist, clean air, clean water, save the ocean. But this whole narrative is is ridiculously a, a lie. Well, I, yeah. So I think the bottom line is how do we get people to wake up? You see, there's two worlds going on right now. There's a world over here uh, where you fight for freedom. You want real science. And by the way, doing science is very difficult. It's not easy. It's not about opinions, right? What we've done is we've trained. Look, there's a big positive thing I'll get to that's actually occurring. What's happening is the educational system over here loves to take kids in, millennials, educate them to get them degrees. And those degrees are based on you, you pleasing your professor. You not you having opinions, not based on facts. And your professor, by and large, is an academic. Most of them survive on government grants. So he's ass kissing to get government grants. And then they have students who learn how to ask kiss. So you add many of these students aren't, aren't learning math. They're not learning science. Uh, C.P. Snow, I don't know if you know who he is, but if you haven't, you should, everyone listening should go read his essay called Two Cultures. Um, C.P. Snow was a physicist, I mean, I'm sorry, a, a physical chemist uh, in England, and he was a novelist. He was a, you know, both sides of the brain. And in 60 years ago, he used to go to these very posh English parties where all the, you know, people with their noses raised up, the English elite were there, very educated. And he would go among them and he'd say, how many of you know the second law of thermodynamics? And they, they, they'd be really upset. They'd go, what are you talking about? But to him, that was no different than asking, did you know Shakespeare? And then he would ask them, how many of you know the difference between force and mass and acceleration? Again, they would get pissed off, but to him, that was no different than do you know how to read? If you ask the average college graduate how, today, how many of them know the second law of thermodynamics or force, mass, and acceleration? They won't, but they walk around thinking they know everything. Because what's happened is we're, we, the entire college model is an indoctrination model. And so those indoctrinated people Whatever the issue is we can talk about, and that's what the book talks about, we, we take cannabis, we take GMOs, and my positions on that are not left or right. You take any of those positions, what we find is the people who are being put in the front, the vanguard, to support erroneous positions are these college-educated millennials who are basically functionaries of an establishment supported by other ass-kissing academics. All right, so we've created this whole culture of people who are essentially frontline people promoting um, narratives or consensus. The good news is the true scientist and the true worker, the working class person, 50% of people don't buy the climate change stuff because they use their rational mind. They use their common sense mind and they know things don't add up. That's the optimism here. But when you go back to the core of this, the only way we fight this is to demand freedom. 
at every step of the way, open discourse, open condition, you know, discourse. So in the 1500s, you may know, the Catholic Church passed the edicts, the decrees known as a Council of Trent, which basically said no one could refute uh, the Bible. Well, 25 years later, when Galileo said, wait a minute, the earth spins around the sun, that the, the, the Council of Trent's decrees were used to persecute him. Well, Schumer's bill, 792, is no different. And in 1960s, uh, you may know this or may not, there was an amendment called the Mansfield Amendment, which was passed, which said that all basic research could, would no longer be funded by the military unless it was for weaponry. So what ended up happening was all the scientific funding, by and large, most of it moved to the NSF, National Science Foundation, NIH, were highly political organizations. So what ended up happening was scientific research is dictated by politicians. And Eisenhower talked about this in his farewell address. So you have science being dictated by politics. And that's why we're at the situation we're in now, that you have most academics are prostitutes. They're not real scientists. They're not, frankly, many of them got into academia by not, in fact, being good scientists. They, they, they're essentially salespeople, flim-flam people. Um, about a month ago, uh, Anomaly, there was an event at Andover, Massachusetts, this library, about 150 people. Again, one of these flim-flam guys, you know, wearing his nice glasses, looking like an academic, the director of some center at Boston University, gets up there to these everyday people who, you know, all are college educated, tells them the oceans are getting more acidic. It's a false statement. He would get an F in chemistry. The oceans maintain pH between 7.3 and 8.5, right? Anything above seven is not acidic. It's called alkaline, basic. Anything below seven is acidic. So I said, well, what's the pH of the ocean? And he was startled. And it, it, it's up on YouTube. And I said, How, what are you talking about? I said, you don't even know chemistry 101. But no one challenges these guys because he used the term acidic, you know, like stomach acid and he alarms people. So the bottom line is we need to have open discourse. There's some wonderful research that was done by Danish scientists just came out over 20 years. These guys busted their buns and they've pretty much shown that the, the Earth's temperature may rise two degrees, has nothing to do with CO2, minimal, but it has to do with the fact that the, the entire solar system spins around the Milky Way, okay? We get different levels of cosmic radiation, and the sun also has a cycle. Those two things interacting affect cloud cover, okay? And that cloud cover differential is gonna raise the temperature probably around two degrees. Okay, but blaming CO2 as one single variable using the global mean temperature as one single bit variable to explain a very complex system of turbulent fluids of the ocean, turbulent fluids of the atmosphere is not science, it's total BS. And by the way, a lot of these academics know it's BS, but they're keeping their mouth shut because if they said anything, their other peers are gonna uh, shun them and they're not gonna get funding from any other areas. So the climate of science you know, what I talk about in this book is I give this dynamic of what I just shared with you. You need freedom to have science to get truth. And from truth is how we get health. Otherwise, we're going to solve fake problems, fake solutions. And in the middle part of the book, I go through climate change. I go through cannabis. I go through GMOs. And some people may get upset because I'm not taking a left or right position on this. I'm taking a position of science.
And what you find is part of the cocktail mix here is to always bring a social justice issue. So when you talk about genetically engineered foods, as I talk about in the book, we, they say, well, we got to help the poor darkies in Africa and India, right? You know, the, the big bellies, they show those pictures. We need genetically engineered foods. When it's actually false, it has nothing to do with GE foods. You look at cannabis. Oh, my God, we, we, we're incarcerating blacks. So we got to get cannabis to every man, woman, and child. And I'm not talking about your everyone's freedom. People should be able to do whatever they want with their bodies. I'm not talking about the political issue of criminalization or decriminalization or legalization. I'm talking about the scientific issue that there's a fundamental linkage between cannabis, violence, and uh, psychosis. Hundreds of papers, but they don't get out because now big marijuana is involved. You know, the, the joint today is 25% THC, not the joint of 1960s, which was 1%. The cannabis, you know, plant has become a delivery engine for THC, just like cigarettes are a delivery engine for nicotine. So when you start looking at this, the important thing is to have scientific discourse, but if you have a bunch of educated idiots coming out, I had a volunteer, you know, who's helping me, you know, and uh, he was supporting my podcast, et cetera, but he got all upset when I said, hey, wait a minute, cannabis, there's a violence link there. 22-year-old kid, no training in chemistry, no training in physics, no training in anything, but he has opinions. So we live in a world of people with opinions not based in fact because their professors have opinions not based in fact. So this is sort of the lineage of what's going on between academics and how they're creating a bunch of educated idiots. Absolutely. Well, you really nailed it. It's the people that don't know what they're talking about and they have every right to have their opinion or false perspective. But those are the top people that want to shut down every single conversation, whether it be at the border, climate change. I mean, there's not a single topic that they don't want to shut down and not let you oppose. They use the LGBT community, women, social justice galore to shut down the conversation completely. And same with marijuana. It's like you can have a discussion, use your science, they could say theirs, but the people on all angles uh, that don't know them, especially with climate change, the more I've researched into it, like the stuff I shared, there's so much about it that not only is not even remotely true, but like you said, it's not, there's other factors like the sun, we don't really control. It's up there, it's hot, but to say that we have control over it is, is ridiculous. So with marijuana, what do you, what do you say with marijuana? You think it, it's, or you know, misunderstood, yes. it's linked to violence? Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, let me give, again, just, just to be clear on this, because it's hard, what's happened is we've trained people to be left or right, oh, if you're against GMOs, that means you're a lefty, that means you must be pro-climate change, okay? You see what I'm saying, uh, right? Absolutely. Uh, Pro-cannabis, but these issues aren't, they're not like that. Again, we don't, so when you look at cannabis, um, you know, this is the narrative, right? You have to understand that in the 60s, one joint had about 1% THC, okay? If people got the sensimia, very, it was a pure female plant, high levels of THC. Um, during the 60s, uh, starting around the 60s and 80s, you know, uh, cannabis use went up and then it actually started dropping. In the 90s, George Soros got involved and they created this new uh, model. Okay, remember, this is the way that this fake science and fake news works. Always inc include some oppressed group, always throw in social justice. Okay, blacks are being incarcerated twice as much. Well, blacks are actually using cannabis twice as much, okay? And 
we got to make sure that we don't hurt all the people dying of cancer. So cannabis was good for everything. So Soros funded about $100 million into the cannabis lobby. And what you see is the cannabis use goes up. And at that same time, the level of THC went up about 25% of the cannabis plant today's THC. And so, th so, the, so just to give you an analogy here, prior to the 18, 1900s, no, uh, mid 1800s, there were a handful of deaths on tobacco, handful. Um, then they started mixing the American and Indian varieties. And then cigarette companies made the cigarette a nicotine delivery engine and their target market was young people. Because once you got someone addicted, you keep them for life. Same with alcohol. And this is marketing 101 or finance 101. You only, it's the 80-20 rule. You only need 20% of people to use your product. Fanatics, and you can generate 80% of your revenue. So for example, in alcohol, the 15, 20% of people who drink four to seven drinks a day generate for the alcohol companies 85% of their revenue. Same with tobacco. So with marijuana, the, when you look at it, right now you have heavy users, man. We're not talking about people who do a joint once in a while. We're talking about they want to get a certain percentage, 15, 20% heavy users of THC at a young age. There's a reason that Marlboro just got into big tobacco, just got into big marijuana. They put about $2.1 billion, mm -hmm. all right? That's Marlboro. So this is big marijuana. So when you look at it, THC is a very, very powerful molecule. And to keep it simple, um, if you look at, you know, I have a very powerful technology. People can go look at it called Cytosolve, C-Y-T-O-S-O-V. It's my new company. Uh, we discovered a combination therapy for cancer, which we got allowed by the FDA. So if anyone, uh, if, if you look at our logo, it says big pharma is a disease where the cure. So anyone listening, if you think I'm pro pharma, it's also going to break your narrative. I'm not. Okay. Um, so when we applied our technology, we went through probably about 20,000 papers. And what we, we extracted the molecular mechanics of THC. And what you see is in our body, every nerve cell has a postsynaptic receptor. I mean, presynaptic and a postsynaptic. Very simply put, right now, you know, trillions of nerve firings are taking place in anyone who's listening to absorb all this. When a nerve signal goes down a synapse, um, it has what's called a presynapse and a postsynapse. When that nerve signal jumps, that is modulated by our endocannabinoids. We actually have our own cannabinoids, which have existed in animals and, and invertebrates and vertebrates for over 500 million years, independent of cannabis existing. And these cannabinoids, which are within us, are extremely important for modulating every neural connection in our body, okay? So everything that moves, signaling, is modulated by endocannabinoids. What, how do you get endocannabinoids? Well, you don't need to take cannabis. In fact, they heard it. We'll come back to that. Right amount of fats, omega-3s, omega-6s. You know, the, the, the traditional diet used to be one omega-3 to one level of omega-6s. You know what it is right today in the American diet? One to 10. So we don't get enough sleep. Um, there are many things that modulate our endocannabinoids. When you meditate, you create endocannabinoids. If you exercise, you create endocannabinoids. Those endocannabinoids give you health. They're central. So what the, um, what the research shows is THC 
mimics an endocannabinoid, okay? It goes, lands on one of your endocannabinoid receptors, and you know what your body does? It shuts down its own production over time. So that's no different than a bodybuilder uh, who wants to take more testosterone in, because maybe his body isn't producing, so he takes testosterone. What happens? Your testes shrink, right? Because your testicles say, oh, wow, I got enough testosterone, even though it's not your own internal ones, and it shuts down. So it's going, what our research shows is that your body has a natural neural oscillation in the normal case. When you meditate, by the way, you get higher frequency theta and alpha oscillations. Meditation increases memory, it increases recall. When you take THC, and there's various, when you, when you can take a lot of it, acute THC, you could do what's called heavy users or do it over long periods of time, or you could be a young person, 15 before the age of 28, where your body's undergoing neurogenesis. In each of those cases, it essentially, particularly for young people under the age of 28, 15, five times more risk of getting psychosis or schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And this is not just one paper. Thousands of papers show this. The correlation in the clinical research shows over and over and over again that there's a link between cannabis, violence, and psychosis. Now, so the quote unquote, the potheads, right, will say, oh my God, Shiva, you're against this or you're against freedom. No, I'm not against your freedom. The issue is that if you grew up in a family of schizophrenics, if you grew up in a family of psychosis and you're 15, you're under 28, you should, it's probably stupid to, to, to become a heavy user of cannabis, okay? It's probably you're setting yourself up for failure. Now, the other thing they've noticed is you could have a heavy user over long periods of time, 30, 20 years, suddenly they have a psychotic episode. And we, we've understood the mechanics why. And other people, it doesn't affect at all. Just like smoking, right? Or drinking. Uh, one of my best friend's fathers used to drink, you know, bottle of gin every day. No issues, okay? When he died, the doctors were like, we don't understand how this guy's liver is fine. So what we're talking about is it's not gonna affect everyone. Everyone's body chemistry is the same. But what we are saying is just like we knew that smoking does have a very high proclivity for lung cancer, and then later on we figured out the mechanics, we know there's a huge correlation, significant one, particularly for young people, particularly for people who have ill health. We've understood the mechanics. Now, what's happened is if you say anything against that, the so-called lefties who smoke weed or Joe Rogan and all these guys, who, by the way, are very well connected to big marijuana, probably going to be trillionaires or billionaires or multimillionaires, Snoop Dogg, et cetera, they don't want you to talk about this. Martha Stewart now is doing a gig with Snoop Dogg, okay? So you have a huge amount of people or a small set of people are going to be billionaires and trillionaires, just like with climate change. And who's going to pay for this, be it climate change, be it GMOs, uh, you know, you go down the list, is going to be working people because ultimately this increases healthcare costs. By the way, the amount of emergency room visits between 2009 to 2013 has doubled with people coming in very clearly psycho psychotic episode and secondary reason, heavy marijuana users. So again, we're not talking about the marijuana that grew in India 5,000 years ago, which was one to one. And by the way, Indians didn't smoke a lot of weed. Okay, this is all myths. Uh, in India, once every year, people maybe did the leaf and, and not the leaf, the stem, um, which had a very low amount of THC. We're talking about creating a delivery mechanism for THC. By the way, let's, let's talk about AOC. Here's a woman whose number one advisor now 
you know, is uh, the, her senior most advisor is a former head of the biggest cannabis lobby. One gram of cannabis requires a hundred times more energy to produce than one gram of aluminum, which is known as one of the most difficult and energy intensive things. I mean, they're not growing these in nice organic farms. They're grown in a hermetically sealed, right, greenhouse. In Washington state, the amount of energy that's going to produce cannabis, you'll need to build another Grand Coulee Dam. And it can't be done with solar or wind. You're gonna have to burn power. I mean, coal, et cetera. So when you really look about it, the goal is to lower pollution, right? The Paris Accords allows China to pr produce another 11 billion tons of carbon. So tell me, how are we lowering pollution? India can pollute another two more billion tons up until 2030, like China. So the entire situation is a big scam. And it, it doesn't, they, they identify a fake problem using fake science, promote fake solutions, and the end result is we're all going to have ill health. Mm. And ultimately, they use the precautionary principle. So the average working person is going to probably pay 50% more in energy. They're going to get carbon tax. Uh, their kids are going to get numbed by, especially if they're below the age of 28, smoking weed, cannabis, not all of them, but you're going to have increased healthcare costs, increased emergency room visits. And the issue with cannabis is let's actually talk about the risks, but you're told to shut the hell up because if you do, then you're anti, you know, being independent. You're against um, the, the decriminalization. You want to put blacks in jail. They always connect it to a social justice issue. Yeah, no, so much good information there. I have a few questions I want to ask you about that. The first one is, what do you think is worse for you, alcohol or THC? The second question is, uh, do you recommend it at all or are you just, it's overrated, don't use it? And well, then the, well, well, I just want to say one more too is then I want to get into CBD if you think there's use for that because it's really popular now. If that's different or, or you have a similar feeling, those are it. Yeah, so, so first of all, the underlying thing is, we need to have discussion, we need to have real research, okay? Um, and, and by the way, there's people promoting cannabis cures everything. So let's talk about the alcohol and the cannabis. Let me give you one study that was done, not with small people, 12,400 high school students. The researchers were actually pro-cannabis. Um, if you read their abstract, and by the way, um, I've gone through these papers, I read them, okay? Um, this abstract, basically the researchers said, um, they went into it, they wanted to look at aggression among high school students comparing Cannabis, people who just did cannabis, people who just did alcohol, and people who did both. Now, in their hypothesis, they assumed that alcohol is going to cause more aggression. Okay? So they were pro-cannabis, in a sense. Well, what the research showed was the uh, proclivity of someone doing cannabis exclusively was 3x. Uh, uh, 3x proclivity for being more aggressive. Um, the alcohol was actually 2.7, which means about 30% less. Wow. And when you combine both, it was 6X. And that goes, feeds into our research that THC, and remember, this is THC. We're not talking about the joint, so that's why you have to be very careful. We're talking about modern cannabis, okay? So when people say cannabis anomaly, we have to say, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the stem? The you see what I'm saying? You have to be very clear. Now, uh, so my point is, the THC, what our research is showing, it actually remodels the synaptic things that it actually allows other drugs to have a synergistic negative effect. It doesn't, not just alcohol, but SSRIs, antidepressants, et cetera. 
nearly 80% of the people who've committed serious crime all did cannabis. Okay, that's a correlation. Most of the people who use opiates or heroin did cannabis. So anyone who tries to tell me, oh, it's not a gateway drug, well, that's not what the data shows. But the important thing is that the actual scientific data is revealing very thing different than what the big marijuana lobby is trying to promote. The National Academy of Sciences in 1999, they, they were very iffy about cannabis. They didn't, this is the grouping of all the scientists, you know, the most esteemed scientists. In 2017, they said definitively, you know, they rate science by different levels, potentially definitively the correlation between cannabis violence and psychosis is significant. That report didn't get any play in the press because now you have people like Sanjay Gupta, you know, all of these guys are starting marijuana companies, man, every single one of them. Now getting back to CBD, CBD is a small component within THC. We need to fund research. The research that came out of London said CBD also has ill effects. My issue is let's fund real scientific research on this. Let's get away from people, every Tom, Dick and Harry, be it Joe Rogan, be it Snoop Dogg, <laughs> having opinions. These people are bought, you know, Rogan is always promoting drugs all the time. Think about <laughs> yeah. what he's doing. And the guy's backed by William Morris, one of the biggest agencies in the world. Look, I used to be in Hollywood, okay? I used to be married to someone from Hollywood. I learned a lot being out there. And agents make you. If you want to be a star, you got to have an agent. And if you don't have an agent, you're nobody. And when you get signed on by an agent, you sign your life away because if you do stupid things, your agent can sue you. So Rogan's out there promoting himself. You know, I mean, his whole shtick is pretty BS. You know, he's got 20 million followers, whatever. His entire shtick is everyone he promotes cannabis, he promotes whatever dimethyl, whatever the God molecule is, right? Yeah. And the yeah. guy has in any of this and but and he put Alex Jones on if you remember Alex went on because Alex was attacking him then he put so Rogan's watching which way the wind blows and in my view he used Alex you know yeah and Alex is under a lot. so what I'm saying is you have to really question where is his money coming from watch the money in climate change academics are need the money and people are gonna make a lot of money like like Al Gore and the people who are going to make carbon tax because after 2030, everyone's going to have to buy carbon credits and the, the value of a carbon equity is going to explode. Cannabis, a lot of billionaires and trillionaires are going to come out of it. And in fact, a lot of the therapists, a lot of the addiction centers are going to make a lot of money. That's what we're looking at. Gun violence. Here's an issue. And I talk about this in the book. You know how many people die of gun violence relative to sepsis? Sepsis is a bacterial infection. 40,000 people a year die of sepsis. 40,000 people die of gun violence. How much research is put into sepsis? If you go on PubMed, nearly 120,000 papers have been researched on sepsis, all the different multifactorials that cause sepsis. You know how many scientific papers have been funded for gun violence? 400, okay? That's almost three, three, 300, 330,000 percent difference. There are multiple issues which cause quote-unquote gun violence. Family, violence on TV, antidepressants. We did a whole system sinking seminar, but we don't really want to know the truth. Mm. So we take one issue, take away the guns, CO2, right? It's always one little issue and a very complex problem. And then that one issue, academia makes funding, and the fake news media puts it out there, 
And then there's people who offer fake problems and they make billions or trillions off of it. That's what's going on. But the essential issue is that we're training a bunch of millennials who know, frankly, have opinions on Facebook and Google. Great. But you better be able to back up your opinions by facts and science, which takes a lot of rigor, a lot of hard work, which working class people know. Mm. And good news is that working people actually don't get bamboozled by this. You know, the people who get bamboozled by this are the moronic educated idiots who have a big student loan and live in their parents' basement. I definitely see the 80-20 rule in marijuana because usually the people who use it use it a lot. I'm somebody when I was young, I used it too much. And I see that in hindsight, it was awful. And now I'll do it very sparingly. Sometimes I'll go weeks or months without, I'm not addicted to it. But I also think there's an element, I can't say for Joe, because I, I do think like you said, he was like, oh no, people are turning against me. I need Alex. They're, he definitely plays the seesaw a little bit. But there's some people who generally really do enjoy that stuff. I've never done DMT, but things like acid and mushrooms, they feel like it's almost religious or a spiritual revolution. And I've seen one of those where I was like, wow, that's interesting. But also I'm not this like, I'm, I'm not all in it all the time where I'm like, that was interesting. Um, I would, I'd be cautious with that. But also I want to hear the counter arguments. That's why I'm great. I'm grateful that you're saying it because anytime it's all in one direction, I voted against it in California because I knew once they legalized it, they're going to do all these regulations. And then I'm sure GMOs or, or pesticide driven. I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't want the state to, to decide this. So what do you think about that? Like, are there any good well, aspects of, of marijuana well, and well, LSD or you think it's just like not as great as they say per se? Well, look, you need to do the, you need to do the research. We should fund research. Okay. Period. And um, let, let me tell you one thing. You know, I did a, a podcast called Real Yogi versus Fake Yogi, okay? Um, you, you know, Joe Rogan puts a third eye on his head, acts, talks a lot of spiritual stuff. He knows nothing, frankly, about real spirituality. The guy's a fake. And I say this, you know, nothing against the guy, but he's promoting a fake spirituality. Look, I grew up in India where my grandparents were poor village farmers used to work 16 hours a day, but on weekends, my grandmother was a village shaman. Tattoos all over her arms, she would go into trances. She, you know, I was taught to meditate as a young child, but what I learned from my grandparents, and these were everyday working people, they didn't have to go to an ashram, you know, to sit with a yogi. Salt of the earth people are the most spiritual people, actually work and do an honest day's living. So one of the things my grandparents told me was in, in India, in ancient India, there was the fake yogis and the real yogis, okay? So if you went to a spiritual master, a true spiritual master, you know what, what he'd have you do, Anomaly? You know, first of all, he wouldn't take you unless you were truly ready to go through training. But if you were, the first 20 years of your training, he'd make you build a house, he'd make you walk up and down hills to cut down trees, you learn skills, carpentry, accounting. I'm talking about you learned actual skills. And then in your 20th year, something like that, in one hour, he taught you meditation and everything. Because the issue was you needed to learn how to be a good human being, have discipline, learn how to work, show up, get up early in the morning, follow a, a, a disciplined life. Mm. During that training, at some point, you may have the opportunity to drink Soma, S-O-M-A, which was a concoction of herbs. And, and, the, and the teacher would tell you, this is not real. It's a virtual reality but it will give you a glimpse of enlightenment, okay? And this opened a doorway, but you were only supposed to do it once, and that was it, okay? But your actual spiritual path was actually being a hard-working, disciplined person of integrity, and the meditation and yoga came much later. 
okay? Now you have new age people going to yogas and ashram and doing this. Most of those people are some of the most narcissistic people. <laughs> true. They really are, okay? So that was a true path of the real yogi, like the disciplined uh, warrior monk, okay? What's happened is that entire process has been, and now in, in that ancient story, there were people who were fake yogis who would take the soma and they say, wow, I experienced all this. And that's all they would start doing, smoking the ganja and the weed all day long. And there were the delusional yogis. They would talk about experiences and this and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, in the spiritual traditions, you're never supposed to talk about your experiences. There was something deeply personal between you and your creator. These guys would start promoting themselves, smoke weed, smoke this. This was a fake yogi. And our research is showing that the real yogis, their brain waves modulate at a different higher frequency. And those who do a lot of weed, it's at a lower frequency. The neural oscillations are lower. So what I'm trying to say is if people want real enlightenment, there is a real path and it's not the easy path. And Joe Rogan is promoting a bogus path because a guy is part of the Hollywood industrial complex, okay? He's got a shtick, man, but he's owned by William Morris Agency, which is owned by Rahm Emanuel's brother. Wow. I mean, when, right, so, so let's really talk about Joe Rogan. The guy is very clever, opportunist. And I was frankly disappointed Alex went on his show because I thought he used Alex like a monkey, you know? Well, Alex, Alex is vice versa. You know, Alex gets a lot of traffic off Joe. Yeah, but I'm saying, in my view, Alex was starting to build a movement um, you know, he may, he may, you know, he's an entertainer, but he was starting to build an independent movement. And I think Alex got scared in my opinion. He got hit, but he didn't need Joe Rogan. He was, I mean, it's, if you look at it in the two week period, Alex is hitting Joe and the next week he's on Joe's show. Okay. Joe has a big platform. And also if, if he lets Alex speak, Alex gets that message. What I like about it is my friends who don't listen to anybody, they listen to Joe. Yeah. So then Alex yep. says stuff like human trafficking at the border and people are like, oh, but it's like you almost, you know, it's it's both ways. Joe's using him because the people turned against him and, you know, he realized but that I'm it's saying, not a long-term strategy. My view, is, my view is great movements take place when you have revolutionaries leading people. And um, I think Joe, Joe Rogan is your, what I call, the epitome of the not so obvious establishment. You see, those in power are very clever. They're very, uh, they mutate like viruses. So you have those in power, the establishment, you have real revolutionaries who wanna, you know, move history forward. And then the establishment is very, very powerful. They create another animal called the not so obvious establishment who acts as though they're for the people, talks their good game, but their goal is to suck people back into the establishment, mm. period. You see this throughout political history. Um, give you an example, right? In 1984, uh, Reagan and Mondale were running for president. There was a guy called Jesse Jackson. And, you know, when I was 17, 18, I said, wow, he looks like he's anti-establishment, blah, blah, blah. At the last minute on the floor of the Democratic Convention, he gives all of his votes to Mondale, speaking the lesser of two evils. We can't have Reagan. And that's when I realized this dynamic. Look back at the last election, Hillary Clinton, Right, you had Bernie Sanders, and I had a bunch of friends saying, you should vote for Bernie, he's anti-establishment. I said, he's gonna do exactly what Jesse Jackson did. He's part of the not so obvious establishment, and he'll give all of his votes to Hillary. No one believed me, but that's exactly what he did. So this dynamic, if people can understand this, and they need to be very critical, because you have movements that start building, people start building independent platforms, this is what Alex was doing, and 
the establishment puts someone like Rogan there to act as though he's hip and blah, blah, blah. But his goal is to always bring people back into the establishment, right? He had Jack Dorsey on there, right? He exists because the establishment allows him to exist. No one gets that many followers overnight, Anomaly. I'm telling you, it's pushed. And he's owned by William Morris Agency, period. No, I feel what you're saying too about definitely people like Bernie and even Joe. I'm always keeping my eyes peeled because I, I watch everything, who they're having on, who they're posting. And for sure, when he had Jack Dorsey on and didn't have Alex on, he lost all his power, which is really in the people and his following. And he had to have Alex on because his whole following turned against him. So I don't know if it was like, let me get Alex back on more like you said, uh, I have to get Alex on or else I might lose well, everything. Yeah, because, because, and, and that wasn't him. I'm sure his agents had a big meeting and let's put him on and you'll protect. Remember, his goal is to build his base and then they sell all sorts of crap through that base. It's, it's a funnel model, okay? None of this is being done to help educate people. This is being done by a people with a lot of money. Everyone should go look up William Morris Agency. Look at all the Hollywood elites who are owned by them. And that's what Joe Rogan is part of. And, you know, when we ran for election, right, Joe Rogan, you know, you know, we're here hitting Warren, fake Indian real Indian. We're on this. We built a, started doing a movement. Joe Rogan never had us on the show. He should have. But real revolutionaries, real people who do not give up a fight, we, we actually can expose the not so obvious establishment. And the way we build movements is by not the establishment, it's the not so obvious people, it's the Bernie Sanders who are more dangerous than the Hillary Clintons because they will mislead a generation and suffering continues. I and agree with you on the, on the Bernie. He's he's totally a sneaky, he's like the sneaky guy to bring him back. I agree. I'm just, because I, I get a lot too about Joe. I'm up for grabs because I, I do feel like a lot of stuff he does sketches me out. But then he'll have, he had two people on that were uh, anti-climate change and talking about it so... That, do you think, and, and this is my gen, uh, genuine question to you and other people, because they're always wanting me to feel the same way you feel. Do you think that there's ever a time where they'd be like, you know what, Joe's really powerful. We'll try to use him. But then he does kind of like the Alex thing where it's like, Alex is like, I'll let him use me to get popularity, but then I'll use him to get the audience. Do you think there's a possible that, or it's possible that William Morris lets him do stuff or you think they just own him completely? Like you gotta do that. No, that, that look, let, let, me, let me tell you how it works, okay? Because you're talking about someone who knows the insights of this having been in the military industrial complex at MIT. You know, I've seen, I've been among these people. They're very clever, okay? You have to look at what the intention is. So if you wanna build a movement, all right? And you wanna create your own platform, you move forward with that. If the man once in a while puts you on Fox News, puts you on CNN, you take it, okay? Right? It's like one great revolutionary said, you know, when the peasants you know, do their own thing, once in a while the master lets, you know, play some music, then you dance, okay? The issue is, the issue is, are you building your own independent movement? If you give all your power to them, that's not a good thing, all right? So to the extent, if, you know, when we ran for office, right, Fox News put us on, Jesse Waters had us on, but when they realized we weren't gonna run as a Republican, they stopped, okay? Because mm -hmm. we weren't no longer part of the establishment, but we did take advantage of it. So that's a strategic question. But the issue is, do you give away your power and you succumb to that? You see what I'm saying? Or it's a strategic question you have to ask. It's not a black and white rule here. But what I'm saying is you should, un it would be stupid to not understand what a Joe Rogan really is about. 
and, and I hate to break that, but he's part of the establishment and he's a very clever part of the establishment. He's a clever monkey. All right. So you have to understand that when push comes to shove, he's going to follow the money on any major issue. No, a lot of people feel that way. And a lot of people are starting to say it. I've never been invited on. So I'm like, if he invites me on, I'll feel a different way. But if I, you know, for years, say even Fox and stuff, I've never been on Fox. I've never, I've been pretty much nowhere. So I'm, I'll, I guess the reason I really ask is not even people will call me a shill in the comments that most of them will agree with you. I say it because if I have a big opportunity, like say Rogan or, or Peterson or someone invites me somewhere, I'll have a conversation with them. Just like in the right situation, I'd have a right. CNN, CNN conversation. I don't like them, but if it makes sense, I'd do it. I'm always like, will people call me a shill? So I'm always very careful to do that because I'm like, at what point will right. it come back at me? Well, here's the thing, right? It's about staying true to your principles. What's interesting with Alex was if you look two weeks before, he was hitting Joe really hard, right? Sneaky snake. <laughs> he called him a sneaky snake. That's so funny. But after that incident, it all sort of went away. And that's what I'm saying we have to look at, okay? It's a red flag. Because, well, the issue is um, we have to start recognizing that I – you know, Alex had us on, I love the guy. The, the extraordinary thing that Alex Jones did was independent of all the media, man, he was building his own platform, okay? And as a technologist, I can tell you, even though you get kicked off YouTube and Facebook, it's very important to have your own technology platform, your own physical website, your own video serving, your own data serving. Because the reality is if you're truly a threat, these other platforms will go after you. So I think what in my, this is my assessment of Alex, and I, you know, I should talk to him about it, is that he was building his own movement independent of anyone. That's why he was creating the gumption. And that's when they started attacking. But I think Alex, in my opinion, lost the fact how strong he actually was. Because whenever you build your own independent platform, you will go through the night of darkness in some ways where you'll get hit really hard. But he could have just projected forward. What I'm trying to say is he didn't need Rogan. He forgot his own power, in my view. I guess just to challenge that, because I first of all, Alex, they had me on InfoWars. It wasn't him. It was someone else. They did something weird. It was a red flag. And Alex, as, as great as he's been, there's been a bunch of red flags with him, too, where I'm just curious. I'm like, I'm always just trying to see who's who. But uh, he does really well. He didn't have to delete InfoWars or anything. I'm just playing the counter argument where going on Rogan, he probably sees a spike on his own website where then he can retain those people, keep them in. He doesn't need Rogan, but it's like me. If I went on Rogan, people would call me a shill. I'm not going to sell out. I'm not going to change my values, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to reach that audience of like 30 million people who actually listen. Like I know liberals and progressives who won't do anything right, but they'll listen to Jordan Peterson because Rogan had him. And they're like, oh, I should take accountability. And I'm like, yeah, you definitely should. So they listen. Well, well, He's a big influence. And Ami, what I'm saying is you should take access to every medium that will get your message out, okay? But should and, Alex do or no? You don't think he should? Well, no, I, no, it's fine. But what I'm saying is, but when he was on the show, he didn't expose Rogan. You see what I'm saying? Up until that time, he was hitting Rogan really hard and exposing him on some very legitimate issues, right? True. After he went on Rogan, why didn't he hit him on the show? That's what I'm saying. When you're on there, you still continue your principled fight. And I'm saying that's the issue. Look, if you go on the mainstream media, right, 
and you want to talk about an issue, you, you don't suddenly change your attack on a particular issue. That's what I'm trying to say. Not Just really. because Fox News puts me on doesn't mean I stop attacking the Republicans, even though they're supported by the rhinos typically. You see what I'm saying? Not that would be compromising my principles. Hey, you put me on, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop. I'm going to still point, what, point out the issues here because now you can reach a greater number of people with the contradictions. And the idea is to move more and more people to recognizing the contradictions between the establishment and the not so obvious establishment. That's my issue. And the more people you can do that, you win more people to actually standing up on their own two feet, using their own minds and realizing you don't need to suck on the titty. I feel you. I'm, I'm just, I'm playing the counter argument too. Cause I'm, I'm not really after they had me on and I wasn't too happy about it. I'm not going to sit here and defend Infowars Cause I, it was a weird segment. It was just one of those things like a red flag. I just kind of wanted to challenge that argument. On the other thing that you're saying, because I'm, I'm really interested, what are your thoughts on, I agree with you on the fake real yogi thing that real comes from inside. It doesn't come from talking about it. If substances are absolutely overrated. The little less substances, even alcohol, you could use the better. What's your stance on like everything? I'm going to go through it and just give me like a yes or no sometimes like personal use and what you think like from I'm drinking coffee and I've heard people say stop that so coffee THC CBD alcohol like what yes or no to all those well look I think these are personal decisions whatever you want to do with your body is cool <laughs> how about you like what's your what's your uh, you know I uh, have learned a certain way to let me give you an example um, I have someone in my family who's a big big user big promoter right uh, several years ago, I'll give you two examples. Um, everyone always wants me to do drugs. Okay. So, uh, so, and I meditate a lot. Okay. So I've been, I do a lot of very interesting other kinds of things because I believe the body is a chemical factory. You can create your own. So this is about, about four years ago, someone came with some serious, uh, uh, cookies. Okay. What is called the best kind of pot. I ate six cookies. Didn't do anything to me. Not one thing. The other people are flipping out after about a half a cookie. Now, I'll give you another example. A friend of mine uh, has done 2,500 hits of serious mushrooms. You know, he's whatever, you're a mushroom traveler. I was out in Montana. He said, you want to try some? He gave me about 10 of them, did nothing. He goes, man, you're an alien. The next day, he gave me 20 of them dunked in some solvent, which is supposed to uptake nothing. So why? And I've heard stories about this from other people. I believe that when you have enough endocannabinoids being produced by your body, these are like crap. You see what I'm saying? You mm -hmm. modulate it. And I know that from personal experience, that that's the effect it's had. So I didn't get any experience. I get more when I sit quietly and I observe the breath and I observe sensations in my body as, you know, so I, that's my experience. Now I try to eat a pretty healthy life, meaning I've learned a lot about your own constitution of your body, which is called Indian Siddha and Ayurveda. I practice those medicine forms. Uh, you know, I teach a course called Systems Health, where we've integrated Eastern and Western medicine. So I'm a big proponent of healthy living, but I'm a proponent of understanding nature's laws and how your body is actually part of that. So everyone's constitution is different. That's one of the things, you know? And you have to figure out what's right for you. And this is a very personal decision, but you can only do that if you understand laws and you have to put some study into it. So I'm saying, you know, do whatever you want to do, but understand, do it with some level of intelligence, because as a great man once said, ignorance is the cause of all suffering. 
So you need to study, you need to put effort into it, and we need to learn. So when it comes to cannabis, you can do whatever the hell you want. People can smoke weed all day, do heroin. That's up to you. I'm not going to get in the way of anyone. You know, that's a personal issue. But I'm saying go into it with understanding. And that understanding requires some level of discipline and knowledge, not having opinions or listening to someone else. You have to believe in yourself and you have to say, let me understand how this actually works. And does it work for me? What are actually the dynamics? You I agree. For yeah, 110%. But you, coffee, coffee, tea, alcohol. So it depends on how the coffee's made, you know? Uh, when I go, you know, uh, if it's, you know, there's a lot of coffee which has high acidity. It's not roasted right, right? You know, if you do the, in my view, if you do the slow roasting and, you know, great cup of coffee is awesome. Uh, I think it has very, very good properties. Again, if people do a lot, it can lower nitric oxide levels and it has cardiovascular. We did a great research paper showing this for the military, right? There are people who do these C4 shots, which is massive. It's like doing 20 cups of coffee. Do I recommend that? Probably not. Some people may be fine with that, okay? Um, I, so your body type manages a lot of the Indian system of medicine. People can be vatha, pitta, or kapha. Each person has a blend, and different foods affect different people in different ways. So my, my position is be happy, be you. Find out what works for you and support that, but find it in a helpful way. But if you can recognize that your body is an incredible chemical factory, this is what yogis knew, that your body can generate a lot of stuff. Your body is a pharmaceutical engine. So why not learn to do that? Because then in my views, I think the, the, my views, the more you can stand up on your own two feet and be an independent human being, that's really a strong, resilient human being. The less I'm relying on other outside factors, I think that's called strength. I agree. So just, just to be clear, I, I get good coffee. Coffee, tea, alcohol, like how, how much do you use per year, per week, per month of those three? I, I don't do a lot, man. Uh, but I'll tell you, fermented drinks, it, you know, every culture, you know, the research that was done that people who live really long, they all had good friends. Number one reason people live long was community, friendships. Number two reason was people did physical labor. Number three reason was, guess what? They all drank a fermented fermented drink. Fermented meant um, in India, people made rice, uh, in, you know, in uh, Japan, rice wine. My great grandfather, when he'd get up in the morning, he'd make a fermented thing of old rice. So there's something definitely valuable about fermented drinks, which is alcoholic, which supports your gut microbiome. So it depends on what you mean by alcohol. You see what I'm saying? If alcohol is refined ethanol, right? We got to look at what the, but if it's something fermented, kombucha, those have alcohol in it. Some people consider that alcohol or rice wine. That's probably very beneficial in certain dosages, in my view. Got you. What, uh, thank you. I just wanted to hear about that. What do you think about President Trump? I, you know, I've, I've been a look. I never voted ever in any election in my life, even though I've been a citizen since 1983. When Trump ran, I voted for him, and I was even surprised I did because I saw within him a disruptor. And you know, I'm a systems guy. You know, a lot of my books are on systems theory. So if you have a system that's moving in a certain vibration. And then someone comes along and hits it really hard. You have the opportunity to take that system from here to here. And that's what Trump did. He was like a bulldozer who completely disrupted the left and right or Republicans and Democrats. That's when I registered as an independent. I voted for him. So he was a necessary disruption. 
I would never have thought about running in electoral politics. But when he ran is when I decided to run against Warren. And I, we're the ones who forced Warren to take the DNA test. We're the ones who destroyed her chances of being president. And the reason, so when it comes back to Trump, Trump came in um, and he disrupted this whole thing. He has awakened people to the whole concept of fake news, right? That's a very, very positive thing. He has created enough uh, acidity for the establishment. That's a good thing, okay? Um, he has made people question things. He has created a divisiveness, which I think is a good thing. Everyone says, oh, we need to unite the country. No, united with who? Because what you've seen is you've seen the parting of the establishment and the, the not so obvious establishment on one side and over here of everyday working people who are saying, wait a minute, we deserve something better. And I think that's all a good thing. And I think everyday working people, um, uh, you know, when I talk about working people, I'm talking about people actually have skills who get up in the morning and work, not um, this other set of fake working people, people who are lumpens, people who live off welfare, which is what the fake left supports. So Trump is, I think, awakened this and he's created in a very good way a good divisiveness. I think it's good. Would you vote for, or are you going to vote for him in 2020? And what do you think of the job he's done? Because I didn't vote for him. I didn't understand it fully at the time. But uh, now I really support him for exactly what you said. He switched it up military-wise, TV-wise. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll support Trump again because, look, when you look what's going on, here's a guy who every day is making hell for the establishment. That's a good thing, man. I don't care if he's throwing stuff at them all day long. I don't care, fact, frankly, if he doesn't pass one bill because we've never had someone like him on a national stage keep hitting at them hard, you know, hitting Romney, hitting the left and the right, the fake left and the fake right, which I like to call them, you know? Um, I, don't even, I don't even care if he passes one bill because in the, in the 20, in, since 1981, since I've been following American politics, right when someone gets to that national stage, they always compromise, they become diplomatic. The fact that he's doing that is something that's necessary because what's that's doing it's going to create a whole new wave of people who want to enter politics. Everyone talks politics now. That's a good thing. So my, I have a very different view on this because I'm a systems guy. I see systems moving like this, and I see the opportunity to take it to a different system. And it's a, it, he's created almost like a window in the space-time continuum where people like me want to get involved in politics. That's a good thing. I agree. And you remind me of him in the sense you're highly ambitious. Like, I feel like he gets more done in a week. You said, I don't care if he passes a bill or not, but it seems like he is doing a lot from prison reform, which the yeah, left only said they would do from military right. industrial. He's not the be all end all anti war guy, but he did switch it up in Syria and said, who are these people? Stop funding them. Got rid of terrorists, said he would do it and did it. Are you impressed with what he's getting done besides just his systems? Oh, kind of disruption? What I'm saying, is all those things are icing on the cake right? Because he keeps fighting. So what he did with criminal justice reform, what he did, um, you know, with uh, saying he's going to get out of Syria, um, he's done a lot of things for small businesses to eliminate all these ridiculous regulations. That These are all very, very good things. And, but I'm saying in the, the, the bigger thing he's done is rattle their cages, right? Which has created a wave that um, they know that their power is not always, and by the way, Republicans and Democrats work together. Trump was a Democrat. He hijacked the Republican party, right? Let's not forget both of these parties are part of the deep state. 
both of them. You know, the, the Democrats in Massachusetts, it's the Democrat and the Republicans swirl around them, right? So when I'm running, what I realize is we ran as independents, we got 100,000 votes and they didn't put me on the debate stage. If I'd been on the debate stage, I would have gotten a half a million votes. About 20 years ago, an independent ran was polling at less than 1%. They put him on the debate stage. And the last time a US Senator ran as an independent, he only got 20,000 votes. But they're really afraid of a super genius guy like me, all right? <laughs> they want, no, I, I say that with all humility. They, they want dopes who they can control. They don't want a guy who invented email. They don't want a guy who's got four degrees. They don't want a guy who goes against Monsanto. They don't want a guy you know, uh, who's good looking, who's smart, who can say it all. They want idiots. So what we're gonna do is we're probably gonna run as go right, so the, if you think about it, the Democrats and Republicans are one. The Republican party doesn't believe in meritocracy because they basically shills the Democrats. So we're gonna probably run as Democrats, go right in and primary the current, current senator. And we're gonna expose them and the Democrats are actually the party of war. They're actually the party of racism. They're actually the party of pollution, right? We want to hit them to expose the hypocrisy of that. That's why when we said only the real Indian can defeat the fake Indian, it wasn't just about Elizabeth Warren. It's about the fact that all of these politicians are puppets. And that's why they're so afraid of me. If I'd been on that debate stage anomaly, we would have won, man. Because people would have said, holy shit, look at this guy. He's a real thing. He did invent email. You know, he does, you know, he, look, I'm the only guy, you know, I don't need to do this, man. I could be, I, I made a lot of money. I've got all my degrees. I've got all my prestige. I've gotten a lot of fame. I've got fortune. And the only reason I'm doing this is because in 1977, I made a promise to my grandparents who were poor village farmers and a promise to my high school teachers that I would use all of my education to fight to create a better world. That's the only reason I'm doing this. And no one can buy me, you know, uh, no one can buy me, period. And, I, and my history proves for itself. I got, I was appointed the head of the largest innovation center by the prime minister of India. When I was in India, after my Fulbright, I exposed corruption there. Most people would have sat there. You know, I went head on head against Monsanto, you know, you know, went against Elizabeth Warren. So you're looking at someone, someone like me is what you need. And the issue is, do you want that? Because in 2020, after that, I'm not going to run again. And Massachusetts is the center, the epicenter of the deep state. It's not Washington, D.C. All the scumbags come out of the one mile radius of out, of out of Harvard University. You know, if you go to Kendall Square where MIT is, you look around you, Facebook headquarters is there, Google is there, Monsanto is there, all the big pharma. So mm -hmm. I'm at the center of the deep state and I know how to fight them. So people really want to know, do they really want a warrior or do they want dumb shit politicians representing them? Because guys like me are one in a trillion, man. And I know that, again, with all humility, when you get to 55, you start realizing what you are in a very truthful way. And it's going to require someone like me to take on these people. And the real issue is do people, or do people really want liberation or do they want to be slaves? It's really about freedom or slavery. That's where we're at right now. Do you want to be a slave? Do you want to be taken advantage of these people? Or do you want someone like Shiva Ayyadari to represent you and fight for you? Because I have a history of fighting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're a legend. And also, besides all the good information, you really have that courage. And that's why even when people say things to me, I'm like, guys, just we need more people to be fighters and courageous. Because if you're one person doing all this stuff, Trump's one person doing all this stuff, if we have a hundred, a thousand, a million 
that's when it changes. But everyone sits in the corner and then tries to scare you like, oh, watch yourself. And it's like, you know, you have the attitude like I made it all. I don't need their money. I don't have to do this, but I'm doing it because it's right and I'm strong enough. So support the legend, uh, Dr. Shiva. Also, take inspiration and really uh, try to fight. I agree with you on Trump. Yeah. I wanted to Oh, One yeah. of the big slogans we have, be the light. You see, if you ultimately believe that human life, I mean, we all live whatever, right? Maybe we'll live for a thousand years in you know, technology, right? But ultimately, life is like a blink, man. We're here and we're gone, right? So people really have to ask themselves, what is the purpose of their existence? What, why are you here? And when you come to that point in life, that's when you become a human being. Otherwise, you're a robot. You know, all this talk about AI, there's a lot of people who are actually robots. So the issue is not AI or not AI. The issue is, are you a human being? And you know, I and and that's where you have to have some quiet reverie with yourself. And that's where you have to sit by yourself and you have to ask that question. And what ultimately emerges from that question is, if you want to be a human being, you have to recognize that you have to rely on yourself and your direct connection with that with this, which is within you and within your creator and so when you come to that conclusion you realize there is no such thing as death or no one can really harm you and mm -hmm. that's the point everyone needs to come to but that takes a, an inward uh directed people who work you know a plumber or an electrician people work with their hands or people who create things already have this they don't need to meditate because every day they're facing reality mm -hmm. and that's why i keep saying those people who manipulate, move money around for a living, get weird degrees where they just make up opinions, it's, it's you're living a fake life. And so you have to get down to doing something real. You know, I value still most people who, who build something, you know, make something, who physically do labor, or an engineer who makes something. Because you can't BS, you know, an engineer has to make an airplane, either works or not. I've created a piece of software, it works or not, I'm in and out of business. And we need to get everyone back to what I call the work, the working people, the proletariat, right? When Marx talked about the proletariat, he wasn't talking about scumbags living criminals or thugs or people living off welfare. That's what AOC wants to talk about. Marx called that the lumpen proletariat. When he, Marx was talking about the proletariat, he was talking about working people, actual people who work. And the goal was they weren't supposed to get handouts. That was called distribution of wealth. That's actually a fake way to resolve the issue. Working people should be controlling the means of production, which means people actually work for a living should be directing the future of society, you know, the working class. So in some ways you can call me a Marxist-Leninist if you want, you know, not in the tradition of what the right calls. A lot of the people on the right don't even understand what Marx actually said. Marx was talking ultimately about you and I being able to pursue our dreams, all of us, and that there are a finite set of people who control that, agents, et cetera. But the ultimate is the true working class, you know, controlling their destiny. So if Google and Facebook and all these guys, you know, who say do no evil, right? Well, why don't they let the working engineers control Google and Facebook? They should divest themselves and let actually people control them. Uh, but the fake left always wants to give people handouts, which is actually slavery. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it, it's also they don't have any self accountability or self awareness like you're talking about. That's the first step to spirituality, to knowledge, wisdom, succeeding. You have to know yourself, be honest with yourself, and focus on yourself. You you couldn't be like, oh, I'm in Newark and they're in Cambridge. You're like, I'm gonna do it, and that's the attitude I have as well. And um, that's what bothers awesome. me about the 
the modern left is uh, I used to lean left, but not only are they almost wrong about everything, they're trying to censor, do fake science, academia, but they have no self-accountability and no self-responsibility. And that mindset, everybody knows from, uh, you know, Eckhart Tolle to uh, like Gary Vee, you know, like spiritual and uh, motivational leaders, they know that it's all about like work ethic and mindset. So the fact that the fake left, as you call them, is pushing this idea of, of victim mentality it is not only financial slavery, where if you make enough money, they take it away and kind of take your life away. It's uh, incentivizing poverty and weakness, which is a huge problem. Kind of like you said with the Trump thing, I, I wasn't even disagreeing with you where I always say he's shaking up the system and the way he goes at the media is bigger than people realize because they have a mind control. They have a mind control over the public. So he calls them fake news and people think it's just funny, but it's he's cracking the, the brainwashing and he's woken up people on both sides. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is anything he's done is great. I don't care if he does builds a wall or not. All I know is he's already like he's already won. He's already won by the fact that he attacked like people actually use the word fake news. I mean, that's how much is that worth? That's worth infinite, you know? That service that he's done to this country where people now call out the news. The New York Times doesn't have all their, you know, their oomph they used to have. That's phenomenal, man. Yeah, that's all. He's done more in a week than I've ever seen Trump's someone do in four years. Trump's already won a billion times over, and uh, you know he's already done, in my view, humanity a great deal. I agree. I want to ask you one more question: Who's your favorite innovator outside of politics? Because I know that innovation is a big part of what you do, and also just mindset and strength. I, I'm glad that you brought this here. Everyone loves it, and it's something people need to hear, as you were saying before. And I'll let you answer that. It's just as hard to 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 never amount to what you think you could have been as it is to really go hard. Where it's you know he says he's taking on the deep state, he's going extremely hard in in Massachusetts, but it's just as hard to not do that and wish you did. You know it's it's no different. Like you said, AI and just following the thing. Everyone plays a role if you work a job that you love, and that's that's great. Everyone needs to do it, but I I personally dislike when people try to put fear out of me and say, "Don't do it." Aren't you scared? Aren't you nervous? I was like, "No, it's, I've I've washed dishes. Like it's it's not any harder or easier." So, let you take it away. Oh, so your question, who, who do I think is a great innovator? In, in which field? In any field? Any field, just top innovator uh, for humanity. Well, yeah, yeah. So I consider, you know, an innovator to be a revolutionary. You know, people who shake up things. Now here's the thing, there are a lot of amazing innovators uh, whose names we don't even know anomaly, okay? And, and I say this because the fact that I'm even here at this point is actually quite, uh, like, again, I said it's one to the trillion to the trillion, okay? By all means, a guy who was an untouchable, you know, growing up in India, my parents meeting, my coming here, uh, my even being able to do all this is, 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 is I, I'm amazed, you know? So when I look at other people whose names we don't even know, um, uh, there are a lot of nameless people who, who don't, don't even have the opportunity that I've had to, you know, to do this, right? Um, Malcolm X, you know, I consider him an innovator, okay, for his time. Uh, I mean, you've got to look at where he came from, right? From nothing, went through his journey in a very authentic way, and then eventually came, you know, he, he was a black nationalist, and then he went to Mecca, he went through his own journey and, re and ultimately realized, you know, in his very famous speech, he said, I believe there will ultimately be a clash between the oppressed and those who do the oppressing, but I do not believe that it would be based on the color of the skin. Two months after that, he was shot. 
So, you know, he's a, he's a great innovator in my, you know, my mind. I, I mean, among scientists, Michael Faraday, I don't know if you know who Michael Faraday was, Maxwell's Laws. Michael Faraday was an actual, you know, and so, you know, you have the laws of Newton, right? Which understand the um, gravity and force, right? Um, you have Einstein, but Michael Faraday was a working class guy. He actually he discovered some of the very fundamental laws of electricity and magnetism, but unfortunately it's called Maxwell's laws, okay? One of the laws is called Faraday's laws, but Michael Faraday, in my view, what I like about him, he was a physical hands-on guy, everyday work, and he was a scholar. You know, uh, one of the things I do like, you know, MIT is part of the military industrial com complex, but I, they have a pretty good symbol, which is called mens et manus, which means hands and mind. You're supposed to use both. So Faraday is one of my big heroes. You know, if you look at his, and he was into spirituality too. You know, he didn't give up the concept of a creator, etc. Another great person is, you know, Jesus Christ or Buddha, okay? These people were amazing innovators and revolutionaries for their time, as far as we know from what we can read, right? Um, separate from the spiritual nature of Christ, he was going head on head against the Pharisees, man, the Jewish elite of the time. He would go, uh, there's a great book I have called uh, Jesus, a Revolutionary, written by a, professor, a PhD in divinity. And he actually says Jesus had a program. He would actually go and eat among all different kinds of people to break down barriers of the time. So, and Buddha did the same thing. Buddha went through his journey. He thought spirituality meant being an ascetic. Then he tried this, he tried all different things, but they were scientists. Buddha was an ultimate scientist. He experimented with truth and came to conclusions. So those are some of the people, you know, I have a lot of respect for Michael Faraday, Malcolm X. I know they're all over the map. Um, believe it or not, I have a lot of respect for Lenin also, for some of the things that he did at his time, not Stalin, but Lenin was one of the biggest guys that exposed the not so obvious establishment of the time. No, I'm glad they were all over the map. That gives a lot of stuff to think about in the spiritual, political, and science realms. Thank you for joining, Dr. Shiva. Let people know where to find you. The book is in the description. It's it's the top link in my description. So you could check out information on the book at vashiva.com and let them know. I saw a lot of, I got to follow this guy. What's his Twitter? So let people know. Yeah, so, so my Twitter is VA, V is in Victor A, underscore Shiva. Um, if you want to go to my website, vashiva.com. And if you're in Massachusetts, you can, uh, it's, it's Shiva, numeral for Senate.com, Shiva for Senate.com. If you guys want to support the campaign in any way, be volunteers. If you want to donate, awesome. But um, our goal is to go right into that primary and win. And as a part of this, we want to really expose the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party. And by the way, there's the, the Republican Party is non-existent in Massachusetts. They're irrelevant and they essentially cycle around. But Shiva for Senate.com, VA underscore Shiva, which is my um, Twitter handle. And then you can go to uh, Shiva for Senate.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining again. God bless everybody for joining. Appreciate sure. you guys for being here. And any last words of wisdom or? The last word is be the light. Know the truth and find your way. All right. Thank you, brother, for being here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of Make America Debate Again. God bless you guys.